Well, good morning. Welcome. So glad that you are here. I want to say thank you to the lady who said last week, you know, Pastor Ken, you uh, periodically ask us, would you wear name tags to all of us, not just the kids' parents, but everyone, so we can call each other by name. She said, I think you should set the example. And I said, duly noted. And so I want to say thank you for that reminder, and I am. And thank you for doing uh, the same. Why don't you take your Bibles? We're going to go to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Ushers, I have some Bibles that they'll spot you if you need one. And we're going to go to Acts chapter 19. You can use your devices as well uh, to get there. And while you're turning to Acts chapter 19, I'll tell you something a little embarrassing about me from decades ago when I was much younger and much more gullible, still single. I would stay up often too late at night, just channel surfing, watching TV, and many a, uh, a night I would, I'd find myself looking at various infomercials and things that promise to make your life better and keep you more organized and lose weight and get in shape and build muscle and look great and all these sorts of things. And it never dawned on me that at two in the morning when you should be asleep, everything seems more plausible. Everything seems more possible and believable. And without Suzanne yet in my life to say, go to bed, it's bedtime. I, I, just, I just kept being a sucker and I'd watch these things and I'd think, well, you know, I think it really could help me. And, and so I would buy these things uh, in the middle of the night and they'd maybe work once and then they'd end up at the trash can or if not there, I'd take it at the Goodwill shop. And, and, <clears throat> and, and, but then one night I was doing this and, and there on my screen was one of my best friends from high school, Milton. Milton was uh, very gifted always through high school, very popular, very funny, very good actor, impersonator, voiceover, all this kind of stuff. And, and he had moved to California to make a career of acting after we had graduated. And there he was on my TV. And, and he was pushing his ab roller out or a stomach cruncher. I forget what it was he was selling, but uh, I thought, well, there you are representing the common man. And you looking great, Milton, and, and you just said it's changed your life. And so I got him, I gave him my MasterCard number on the phone and called the 800 number, and I bought one of those two th uh, things for $49. The next morning, I emailed Milton out in California and said, hey, I saw you on TV last night, saw that little thing that you were selling, and it looked pretty good to me because you're looking pretty good, and so I bought one of those myself. About five minutes later, I get an email reply back from him that said across the top line, ha, 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 
at this point in Acts chapter 19, we have uh, Paul who has launched out on his third missionary journey. And in this missionary journey, he's going to get over to Ephesus. Got a map for you so you can see. Remember where Ephesus is. You remember the second journey, he, he kind of seemed to be wanting to get there, but the Lord kept moving him up and to the, to the west, up through Troas. And, but this time, he gets to Ephesus. And there's a reason he wanted to get there. Because it was one of the five largest cities in the Roman Empire. It was a hub for trade and commerce. And so you think of Ephesus as his little town. No, no, it was a bustling place. And he figured if he could anchor there in Ephesus for a while with all the people that were coming in and out from that port city throughout Asia. And so that the gospel would be caught and then taken out and taught by other people who had been evangelized by his ministry. So he ends up staying in Ephesus two years, Paul does, which was a comparatively long time for him because sometimes he'd only stay a few days, weeks, or months in some of these many other places that he was going and starting churches. Why so long? Ah, because Ephesus was known to be a spiritually charged city. They had sorcerers. They had dark magic exorcists. Uh, incantations, all sorts of interesting things. And he realized this place is going to be a tough nut to crack. It's going to spend, it's going to take a little bit longer here to really get the power of the gospel into these people. Now, with that background, let's look at Acts chapter 19. We'll start in verse 8. So Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Remember, the way is what Christianity was called there at the start. So Paul left them, and he took with him his disciples, and they had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Stop there. So you remember Paul, who's born a Jew. He had a method. Whenever he'd go to a new city, he would go first to the Jewish synagogue and he would start to preach and teach to his own, the Jewish people, until they just couldn't tolerate the message of Christ and the cross and the resurrection and, and so on. And then they'd put him out. And then he would go find some other place that he would teach and preach outside of the synagogue and, and the ministry continued to be opened up to the Gentiles in this way. So verse 10, he went on, this went on for two years. We talked about that already. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So his strategy is clearly going to work. Now, if you're reading the ESV translation, which is a great translation, you might see a little footnote in your Bible on verse 9 explaining that some of the early Greek manuscripts have added to this verse something that didn't come through in all the manuscripts, and that is that he was doing his ministry from 11 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. Why 11 to 4? Because over there in those days, people would work from 7 a.m. till 11. Then they would have a long lunch, siesta time during the heat of the day. And then from 4 till 9 or 10 at night, they'd come back and they'd do their work. 
And so Paul, who's been put out of the synagogues, he's found this hall that belongs to this guy named Tyrannus. So presumably he's renting it out for five hours a day. Imagine this. Paul, who is a tent maker by trade, he's making tents from sunup to lunchtime. He's not taking a long lunch and a siesta. No, now he's going to go do five hours of preaching and teaching about the gospel. Then he's going to go back and make some more tents in the evening. And so this is, this is just telling you how he, what he's doing in this ministry that he's having uh, in those days. Verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and their evil spirits left them. What's going on here? Well, it's sort of like, you remember, there's this story in the Old Testament back in Exodus where Moses is sent by God to say to the Pharaoh, you've got to let my people Go. The Jewish people that you've kept uh, hostage here, captive here as slaves for 400 years, let my people go. And the Pharaoh, who thought of himself as God, it was like, who's your God? So, begins a series of miracles. Moses put his staff down and it turns into a snake. And a succession of other more progressive uh, miracles that happened. Why? Because it was going to take a lot of supernatural to finally get the Pharaoh's attention and realize, whoa, my magicians can't even do what you're doing here. Starting to realize there is a one true God who stands above all the rest. Well, like we were saying, Ephesus was already steeped in this dark magic superstition and all. And so Commentators tend to conclude that in this instance, God was seeing fit in Ephesus in this day and age to show up in supernatural ways that would help those people come alert to realizing, whoa, there is something of power in the name of Jesus. That even the towels, the sweat towels, and the aprons that Paul had worn while he was building tents would be hustled over to people and laid upon them and they'd be healed or exercised of their demons. The problem with this verse is that Luke was telling us something that I think he intended to be descriptive. Descriptive of a unique situation that you never see happen again in the New Testament. Not prescriptive. Not saying, so this is therefore how you should go and do it. Uh, when you want to pray for healing and everything. It was, it was God's acquiescence to the culture saying, this will get your attention. But unfortunately, I'm afraid there's some who've taken this verse and run with it and abused it, even today, in various TV ministries particularly, uh, saying, if you'll send us in your money, we'll send you a prayer handkerchief that we've prayed over and it'll do wonderful things for you and so. So years ago, I was on an airplane and seated next to this man, and we got talking and began to tell a little bit about our life story. And he said, so what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm actually a pastor. I'm starting a new church. We call it Faith Bridge. It's in Houston, blah, blah, blah. He says, oh, that's good. He said, you know, I used to be in ministry myself. Really? He said. I, I said, he said, yes. I said, well, tell me about it. He says, well, you might have heard of it. And he calls the name of a TV evangelist. I knew exactly who he was. I'm like, well, sure I've heard of him. 
I've even watched some of his things while I'm surfing on late night TV. And, <laughs> and he said, they're interesting, aren't they? I said, yeah. I said, so I, I've got a question. He smiled as if he knew what was coming next. I said, so I watched that, and he brings up people on the stage by the dozen, several dozen. He gets them lined up, and, and he's going to heal them of their infirmities right there. And he never seems very humble. He never seems very desperate for God. He, he is, it's almost as if God is supposed to be his servant, and he's reminding God of what God must do because he said it. And sometimes for flair, the, the preacher, he'd take off his coat jacket, and he'd start whirling around like his coat was full of the Holy Spirit too. And then he'd whip it up, and, and people start falling backwards, slain in the Holy Spirit. And then, almost like child's play, to some he'd walk up and go, and blow on them, and they'd fall back, slain in the Holy Spirit. And, and I said, so I have to ask, in those services... Is that really the authentic working of the Holy Spirit? Or is it more theatrics and polished production? He nodded, smiled knowingly. He says, well, your doubts are, they're well-founded. He says, here's how it is. When we were young, back then, 20 years ago, probably now 40 when we were young, God's anointing really was on our ministry. And surprising things happened sometimes, and people really did get healed. It was powerful. And we could feel the presence of the Holy Spirit working. It was exciting. And, but then what happened is sort of like a treadmill that starts speeding up faster and faster and faster. More people kept coming and coming and coming, but they, now they weren't so interested in meeting the risen Christ personally. They were just showing up for whatever miracle that they needed, and, and it becomes too great a temptation, and, and finances get involved, and the next thing you know, the tail is wagging the dog, and, and you're producing shows that, that, that where people are reciting scripts that you've written for them, and, and the miracles are mostly staged he said and that's why when one day I, I just looked at the mirror and I said to myself this isn't real anymore we're not desperate for God's presence anymore he said that's when I had to I, I had to step out and I moved on I'm going to give you three takeaways from our passage today here's the first one God's presence is miracles, it's healings, it's power. They need no human fanfare. Paul, see, Paul was never drumming up any fanfare around his aprons or his sweat towels that people were sort of borrowing and running off. He wasn't even recommending that they do that. Maybe he didn't even know it was happening, but it, it did, as I've said, lead to, to most commentators concluding God was just being very patient and gracious and accommodating himself to the Ephesian worldview that was uneducated, but very spiritually to meet those people on terms that would get their attention. 
not as a prescription, but as a description. Now, having said this, I wouldn't want anybody to misunderstand that God does not do still miracles and healings. Oh, he does. Those of us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we do believe that there's power in the name of Jesus and that surprising things can happen. And that's why we pray for healing for people here regularly, even today. If you come forward and you need, we'll pray for you at the end. But just know we're not going to give you any false promises. Didn't make you any guarantees of what God's going to do. He's, he's not a dog on our leash. No, he's sovereign. And so we pray and we ask and we trust and... Sometimes he does do miracles, and sometimes he does heal on this side. But sometimes he doesn't. Even then, though, we who are in Christ take comfort in the knowledge that he always heals. 100% on the other side. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So... Once these Ephesians who were rife with sorcerers, exorcists, and on, are hearing the, about the name of Jesus, some who were uh, particularly observant, clever, uh, shysters, they decided, we're going to try to cash in on the name of Jesus too. This guy, Paul, he seems to be doing his stuff with some real power, and he does it in the name of Jesus, whoever that is. So, why don't we just work that into our little incantation? We'll just work it into our little rubric as well. Look at verse 13. So some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of, Jesus, of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. And they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest, they were the ones doing this. Who are these guys? The seven sons of Sceva. Sounds like a rock band. The seven sons of Sceva. Apparently, they claim to be exorcists. But if you're not anchored in Christ, you have any business trying to do spiritual warfare against the powers of evil. So they're phonies. And probably their father was too. Sceva, the high priest, because we have no other evidence whatsoever in, in any written documents, biblical or extra-biblical, that there was ever a high priest named Sceva. So probably he too was pretending, like father, like son. You have a bunch of pretenders. Look what happens uh, in verse 15. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? And then the man who had that evil spirit jumped on those seven, overpowered them, gave them such a beating they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. See, since these wizards didn't belong to Jesus, they didn't have any real power. And so the demon basically tells them, I know who Jesus is. I know who Paul is, but who are you knuckleheads? And working through that tormented man with supernatural strength, all of a sudden that one man whips the tail of these seven sons of Sceva who go running out naked and bleeding. I like how Matt Chandler sums up this, this verse. He says, <clears throat> if, at the, if at the start of the fight, all seven of you were wearing pants, and a few minutes later, all seven of you come running out, and you don't even have your pants on anymore, you lost that fight. 
driving home a very serious point here. He's driving home the serious point, accentuating for us that the demonic and evil are real and powerful and not to be toyed with. Pastor Dan and I, we have a, uh, a mutual friend going way back to our seminary years. His name is John, who if he were here, he's a, miss- he's a missionary. If he were here, he could tell you the story he's told us of when he was uh, asked to assist with an exorcism. It was back when we, all of us were students at Asbury Seminary. And, and one of the professors asked John, who uh, was one of his students at the time, said, I, I need you, could you come and, and help? So he, he said, I want you to be praying and fasting. So we're joining him and praying about this thing that's going to happen. Well, the man, <clears throat> he, he does go and he does assist and he comes out of the cafeteria that afternoon for lunch. We're like, how did that go? It was the freakiest thing I ever saw in my life. I said, tell us. He says, well, the man who we were praying over, he was sitting in a chair and asked to sit in the chair. And Dr. Steve asked him uh, to, to stay seated. He says, but uh, oftentimes what happens in a situation like this is when we begin to pray in the name of Jesus, you may want to get up. And so I've asked these two gentlemen to help be holders. I said, what's a holder? He said, our job, mine was on the right, another guy on the left, is to hold his shoulder and hold his arm down to the chair. And Dr. Steve is, is kneeling there and he's praying and he has his hands on his knees He said no sooner had he started to pray in the name of Jesus. We're asking that only one spirit be felt in this office. Only the Holy Spirit of Jesus. No other spirit. He said all of a sudden that man's body contorted and got all tense and strong. And sure enough, it was happening. He said the hair on my neck was standing up and we're holding him down. And and he's praying. And and finally, Dr. Steve says to the demon, he says, I need you to identify your name and the man spoke whatever the name of the demon was and then dr steve says and then in the name of jesus we command you to go out from this man out from this office off of this campus to wherever jesus sends you he says after some struggling finally the man's body went limp and his soul was liberated leads to the second takeaway the power of evil is real but it's never a match for the name of Jesus and that's what the Ephesians learned look at verse 17 when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor and many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them up publicly and when they calculated the value of the scrolls the total came to 50,000 drachmas and in this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power now Here's the question that you have to ask. Why do you suppose that Luke chose to record this as one of the high point moments in Paul's two-year ministry in Ephesus? I'm sure there were plenty of other things he could have written about. But Luke, writing for Theophilus, decides, I'm going to tell him about this one. 
I think it's because apparently this was the day that the tide turned, that the scales tipped, that the Holy Spirit had seen fit to fire a shot across the bow that ricocheted throughout Ephesus and sent shockwaves throughout Asia, that Jesus was Lord. So much so that many of the unbelievers in Ephesus, they ran home and, and they said, you know, I've dabbled in the occult myself. And they started bringing back their magic books and horoscopes and scrolls and Ouija boards and cult manuals and cult literature. And, and they didn't bring it to give it away to somebody else or sell it at the secondhand Burke store. They, they brought it to throw in a public fire. They were dis- declaring, we're dependent on Jesus and only Jesus. We're done with that stuff. Sort of reminds you of that scene in the Old Testament where Elijah, the great prophet, was up on the top of Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal, they were in this duel and they're like, you, you, you watch us, 400, 450 of them. They are up there and they're like, you watch and we're gonna pray to Baal and fire will fall from heaven. They tried and tried and tried, nothing happened. Finally, they said, well, you take a turn. And so... Elijah steps up and he hardly said, dear God, before from heaven the fire fell, lapped up the whole altar there. Nothing compares to the one true God. Nothing compares to the name of Jesus. (laughs) Just give me Jesus, those Ephesians were saying on this day. And this was no cheap bonfire. You know how much 50,000 drachmas is worth in today values? It would be somewhere between $3 million and $6 million. That's a lot of stuff they just burned up. Incidentally, do you know how people get involved in darkness and evil and sin? I'll tell you in one word. Gradually. It's always gradual. I'll illustrate. Because I I think it's important for you to realize this passage actually has a lot to say for you. Because I I know some of you are like, well, I've never really dabbled in that. It's an interesting story. It doesn't really relate to my life. No, no, it does relate. Here's how it relates. Because see, after trusting Christ, what you have to realize is that the forces of evil and darkness, they're not, he's not going to give up on you, the devil isn't. He's, he, if he can get you to hell, he's still going to come after you and, and try to weaken you spiritually and make you anemic and impotent and ineffectual as possible for the rest of your years here on earth. And all he needs is one little crack in your soul to get in and start wreaking havoc on your life and life of others around you like happened with one lady in a church that I used to serve at when I was a young guy as an associate pastor and she came into my office and I said well how can I help you and she says well I just need help because I'm grieving I said okay what happened she says well recently my husband was on a business trip in Austin and I thought, well, this will be fun. I'll take the kids. It's summer. We'll drive over and we'll surprise them. We'll have dinner and we'll have a slumber party while he's there. 
drove over, and they're excited, and we're excited, and get to the hotel, and got to his room, and knocked on the door, but the door wouldn't open. And she said, I could hear some commotion in the room, and then after listening, I realized someone is in there with him. But the kids kept knocking innocently, and finally he spoke, and he said, why don't you take the kids down to the pool? I need a few minutes to get ready. She said, my heart was shattered. The children were confused. Why does he just let us in? She said, I didn't want to burden them with an explanation. So she said, I just took them back to the car and strapped them back in, and we headed for home. And I explained that their daddy just was feeling sick that day while trying not to break into sobs until they'd fallen asleep on the drive home. Now, how did that happen? Gradually. That man did not just have a problem that started that day. Now, if you went back, you would have found months, years earlier, he had gotten himself looking at some pornography, and that was interesting, and then that went on, and he becomes addicted to the pornography, and that tarries on, and finally the devil says, well, you know, if that's interesting, imagine how much more it'd be if, if, if you had it with an actual person. Because if you give the devil an inch, he'll take a mile. And so over time, this man, I don't know, he had a mistress or more, and, and prostitute and more, and but it always kept it a secret, locked up, rather than bringing it out into the open and confessing it to a brother or two in Christ who could have prayed for him and helped him to step out of bondage into liberty and freedom. Like we have many men studying freedom right now. And before long, he, he was just all in until the bomb went off that evening. And so what I'm saying, friends, is even if you're not involved in cultic material, and I hope that you're not, and I suspect that probably most of you aren't, in the same way that the Ephesians had a brand of magic that they believed in, so do we. For some, it's the magic of alcohol. Or other substances. For some, it's money. It's a magical power in money and the quest to get more of it dominates and drives people's souls to do weird things. There's the magic of self-reliance and fame and recognition and reputation and success and achievement and notoriety and on and on, friends. Which leads us to the third and final thing I want you to take away today. It's this. Anything that stands in the way of your relationship with God needs to go on the bonfire. Don't kid yourself like the frog getting boiled in the kettle 
over time. The devil works subtly, but he works gradually and perseveringly. Darkness doesn't consume a person overnight. No, it's never sudden. It's always gradual. And that's why Peter would remind us in 1 Peter 5, 8, wake up. Be alert, be sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, continues prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. And he'd love to bait you with another counterfeit. Because he's a lion, but he's no match for the lion of Judah, Jesus. And it's in Jesus, friends, that the victory comes. That's where the liberation is found. Because nothing that you or I might ever move towards in hopes that it has some sort of magical power, nothing compares to Jesus. He's the only one who came from above to live in human form with flesh and blood, a perfect life that you and I couldn't live. So that then he could die the death of punishment that you and I deserved on the cross so that then on the third day he could conquer the grave proclaiming to any and all, if you'll tether yourself to me, you too can have life. You too can have victory. That's the good news. That's why we turn to Jesus. And so as we come to a close, I want to ask you, what is it that's standing between you and Jesus. What do you need to be done with? What do you need to put in the bonfire? As it were. Maybe it's a habit of some sort. Maybe it's a relationship. And deep down you know the Holy Spirit's been saying you oughtn't be you stop it, but you just keep. Maybe the Holy Spirit's saying to you, seriously, today, bonfire, turn, repent, come clean, step into freedom. Whatever it is the Lord is saying, I invite you, friends, surrender it. Let go of it. Hear him say, I'll liberate you if you'd let me. The reason we do, friends, is because Jesus is better. Better than anything else you could put in his place. Jesus is better, better, better. Let's pray together. Lord, as tricky and exceptional as this passage is, there really is so much relevance in it for all of us. Because though probably any number of us never have really gotten involved in occultic sorts of things, but some have, and so the application will be very clear and simple. For all of us, though, there's been other temptations, allurements, magical draws to things that separate us from you. And anything that does, we know, is, is sin and blocks the vibrancy and the freedom and the victory that you want to bring to our life. 
You want to give us life that's abundant. And all of those things, though they promised abundant life, they lead to bondage. Oh, Lord, wouldn't you do a liberating work today? I'm asking it in the name of Jesus. Friends, what is it in your own heart, mind, life that you need to surrender? Why don't you just, even right now in the quietness of this moment, you just, just say, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm going to surrender this. I'm going to let it go. I, I must because I know deep down where it's going to go and it's not going to go, it's not going to go well. God, I'm praying that you would bring freedom and liberation because you are better, Jesus. Forgive us for the times that we convince ourselves that maybe something else is better. Why don't you just let go of that right now, friends? And I would challenge you, whatever it is, that, that you would dare to confide in somebody else because we never do as well as we do when we'll share with a brother or a sister in Christ or a spouse. I need to be honest here because it's the secrets that destroy us and it's the isolation the devil loves to get us into. Because if he can get us singled out, he can get us plucked off. Lord, wouldn't you do a liberating word work even now? We surrender all these things to you, Jesus. Jesus.